0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution, and UHMS-accredited hyperbaric medicine practice, with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com, Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon. We're very pleased to have this show uh, available for you today, made possible uh, due to collaboration with our friends at Northside Hospital and the Northside Cancer Institute. They've made available to us today a, a group of physicians that are readily considered among the top providers uh, that would face folks that are dealing with skin cancer and that's our topic today Um, you know as I got to looking into the topic a little bit uh, it is certainly one that uh, we need to have a little information out in the community as many as two million people a year are diagnosed with skin cancer and uh, it's certainly one that we can easily reduce the rate of occurrence uh, in that particular group if we do a little bit better job of uh, getting it uh, diagnosed early and taking measures to prevent it, which uh, obviously uh, Dr. Gross and colleagues can certainly share some information about that. But since we do have a full room today, we'll go ahead and jump in and uh, introduce everyone real quick, uh, go around the table, and then uh, we'll come back and we'll kind of get started on our conversation. But uh, since we're going to start with you, Dr. Gross, we'll go ahead and uh, mention our uh,
1: dermatologist here, Dr. Alexander Gross. I'm Dr. Alex Gross. I'm a dermatologist at the uh, Georgia Dermatology Center. My office is at Northside Hospital, Forsyth.
0: And Dr. Davidson, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Dr. Scott Davidson. I'm a surgical oncologist at Melanoma and Sarcoma Specialists of Georgia. We're very
0: pleased to have back with us on the show today Dr. Jenny Chang, Artisan plastic Surgery. Thanks for coming back. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, we'll have one coming in a little bit late. Our uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth of uh, the Medical Oncology Group that's going to be joining us today from Georgia Cancer Specialist. He'll be coming in late. He, uh, like all of our other specialists, coming from a very busy office to uh, help. Uh, educate our folks in the community. So uh, we'll have him join us later. But uh, last but not least, we have Dr. Rosenbaum from uh, Radiation Oncology. Thanks yeah. for coming out.
3: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So getting right down to our topic here, we were, as we discussed, we're we're going to be going into uh, cancer, skin cancer and how we might be able to prevent it. So I'll start with you, Dr. Gross, and talk about, you know, from a dermatologist perspective, obviously you're dealing with issues uh, affecting the skin. And, you know, tell us what are the best ways that we can prevent it? Because I know that there's been some, you know, discussion in the community out here of, of late that deals with uh, prevention and, and sunscreens being one of the topics. Are they as effective as they say and what really is effective, what's not? So I'm sure you can kind of share some information about one. How do we avoid getting skin
1: cancer to begin with? The best way to avoid getting skin cancer is to avoid exposure to ultraviolet radiation, which means staying out of the sun and staying away from tanning beds. And for those instances when people have to be out in the sun to make sure that their skin is protected, we recommend uh, wearing protective clothing, hats, uh, sunglasses, and for any area of the skin that's not covered with those things, uh, a sunscreen with an SPF of 50 or higher.
0: So, so the you know the ones that are 50 or higher, they're they're technically safe. I mean, I've seen some that are even like 70 and even higher. Are are you truly getting greater and greater coverage, or is it kind of Beyond 50, they're all all the same. Do you truly get incremental improvements
1: the higher you go? The Food and Drug Administration has recently examined that, and they've determined that really once you go much above 50, that you're not getting much additional protection.
0: Yeah, so, so if it's more expensive to get 70 or 100 or some super sunscreen, you may be just as fine with something a little bit less expensive in the 50 range. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you know, when... When we talked a little bit before the show, um, we talked a little bit about screening, and then we want to go into screening uh, in terms of its effectiveness. Um, when we think about screening for cancers, I mean, obviously, there's a number of different things in the community that you can go through and get either a quick check. Someone takes a takes a quick look at you um, and says, "Yeah, oh, you look great." But uh, you know, as we were talking, for someone who went through one of those you know community screenings for skin cancer, for example, that that may may not catch everything that's out
1: there to be caught. And you were talking about the importance of understanding that. So skin cancer screenings are great if you have a spot in particular that you're worried about and you want to show it to somebody. Um, and I'm talking about community skin cancer screenings that take care take place at, at hospitals and malls where you're really not having a full head-to-toe skin exam. And skin cancer screenings are, are good for um, having somebody look at an individual lesion or the sun-exposed portion of your skin, but it really doesn't take the place of having a good comprehensive skin exam, which involves taking all your clothes off and and having somebody examine you from from top to bottom, which normally would happen more frequently in the context of a regular doctor's visit.
0: So even my primary care physician, for example, internal medicine or a family practice provider could be educated enough in terms of what they need to look for that they could actually do that examination if I can't get into my dermatologist or I don't have a dermatologist.
1: My personal feeling is that every man, woman, and child should have their skin examined once a year. And this can be done within the context of a typical annual skin, uh, I'm sorry, a typical annual examination uh, for children at their pediatrician, for adults at their family practice doctor, or at their internist. And as far as who needs to see a dermatologist, certainly anybody who wants to see a dermatologist to be examined. um, And then people that we identify who are at high risk, people who have a history of skin cancer or a family history of skin cancer. Or people who have sustained a number of uh, sunburns, people who have very fair-complected skin, um, and people who have a lot of a lot of moles. So
0: when you look, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily, unless it just looked really weird. I don't know that I would necessarily know this particular freckle that I didn't see before needs some serious attention. I did, you know, is there any kind of you know, best guess advice. I mean, obviously, you know, in the context of our discussion here, we're not trying to replace going to see you in the doctor's office because that's where the real magic is going to happen. And that's where a true diagnosis can be made. So folks out there who hear our information today need to come away with, a you know, better understanding, maybe some questions to ask, but not, <laughs> not just substitute uh, going to see the physician in their office to be seen. But, but do you have some, you know, rough estimations of, you know, what you might be concerned about if I'm just at home looking at my child or
1: myself and, and and see, wow, this maybe need to be seen sooner. I think probably the simplest criteria would be anything that's really, really black needs to be examined. But um, we have uh, developed in the skin, in the, in the dermatology community, what's called the ABCDE uh, mnemonic or criteria. And you can go online at WAAD.org or www.skincancerfoundation.org. And you can see uh, visuals of this ABCDE criteria. The A stands for asymmetry. Instead of having a geometrically round or oval lesion, um, melanomas tend to have uh, unusual shapes. The B stands for border irregularity. Once again, instead of having kind of a smooth, round or oval border, um, melanomas tend to have bizarre and funny non-geometric shapes. Mm. The C stands for color. Uh, most typical moles or normal moles will be uniformly pigmented, but melanomas tend to have a number of different colors in them. They can have some red, some brown, some black, some blues. Ah. Uh, the D stands for dark uh, or diameter. I like the, the D standing for dark better than diameter. Um, sometimes melanomas can be really small, two or three millimeters, okay. but almost all of them are black. And then the E stands for evolving, which means that if you notice anything on your skin that's changing, um, that would be another red flag.
0: Okay, we've been talking with Dr. Alexander Gross, a dermatologist, and one of the physicians on the multi-specialty team that treats skin cancer from the Northside Cancer Institute, and we've been learning a little bit about how to go and protect yourself with regards to annual checkups with your physician, whether it's your primary care doctor or a, a, a skin specialist, uh, particularly one that focuses on skin cancer treatment, such as Dr. Gross. And uh, is there Is there a region of the body that tends to be a little bit more prevalent, such that you would kind of want to keep an eye on that? Or is it just really mainly, as you were describing earlier, the areas of the body that have really been cooked by the sun?
1: Well, you can get skin cancer on any part of your body. (coughs) Um, Non-melanoma skin cancers, basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancers are more likely to occur on sun-exposed areas like the, the face and the arms and the neck. Uh, Melanomas in women, the most common area would be the back of the leg. Uh, In men, the most common area would be uh, the back of the back. But you can get a melanoma even where the sun doesn't shine, and that's why it's important that all skin surfaces be examined.
0: Well, I, you know, I think this is very useful information uh, for the folks out there, particularly from the perspective of actually having, you know, that being a very key component of your annual exam. And I know for me, I've not done that up this time, and I'm going to be 47 this year, so I'll have to consider doing so since I've, you know, cooked the mess out of my body a couple of times as a young man. So uh, I'll have to... Uh, Uh, start doing that. Now, I know back in, you know, 15, 20 years ago, back when I was a much younger man, you know, leading up to a trip, uh, I might be known to go to a a tanning bed, for example, to try to pre-treat my skin, pre-tan my skin the safe way. Um, I don't know if that argument is still out there in the community, but talk a little bit about that. I would presume that the tanning bed is not a safer way to get color on your
1: skin than going out into the sun. Absolutely not. First of all, the tan that you get from a tanning bed, which is a UVA tan, is not really a quote-unquote base tan, and it doesn't give you any protection from being out in the sun. There's some recent data that shows (laughs) that people who use tanning beds have a 70 percent increase risk in the incidence of melanoma, and that's really bad. Also the Food and Drug Administration just recently reclassified tanning beds from class one devices, and a class one device would be like a tongue depressor or a a Q-tip to a class 2 device, and class 2 devices are devices that have the potential for committing, for um, for, for causing damage. Well,
0: <laughs> it's surprising that they're still allowed out there, but they're everywhere, obviously, and I, I think it's very useful for people to understand from the expert's perspective, you're not saving yourself anything in terms of safety if you get into one, so that's uh, excellent to know. And, and as it relates to getting checked out for the presence of skin cancer, are the screenings Are they covered by my insurance plan when I go to the doctor and and request a a skin cancer screening? In Georgia, they they definitely are. And um, so they don't really have any more out-of-pocket costs other than just my doctor's office visit. That's correct. So... That's great, and when we, when we find something worrisome, can you kind of take me through, you know, we'll get down and we'll start kind of involving the other members of our panel here. Um, you know, we're going to, you know, assume that we found something worrisome and, and take me through, you know, what's going to happen with me as a patient from
1: that point forward, and then we'll kind of
0: inc- involve the other members of the
1: team. So you come to the office for the examination, and we check you over, and we might find a lesion that we think is potentially a melanoma. So we would go ahead and do a biopsy on that lesion, and the type of biopsy we do, we try to remove the entire lesion um, at once, so that when the pathologist gets the specimen, they have the best opportunity to make the correct diagnosis. Once the pathologist looks at the skin, they'll tell us that the lesion is benign, or it may be atypical, which means funny-looking but not a cancer, mm. or they may tell me that it's a melanoma. Now. We divide melanomas basically into three different types, thin melanomas, intermediate thickness melanomas, and uh, thick melanomas. And the definition of a thin melanoma, depending on what study you read, would be a millimeter or less. And normally, the thin melanomas, I would treat in my office. I would just go ahead and do the surgery myself, just do a cut and stitch surgery. It takes about a half an hour to do. And most of those patients don't need any additional treatment. They just need to be followed clinically a little bit more carefully. But if the lesion is an intermediate thickness melanoma or a thick melanoma, meaning it's thicker than a millimeter, then I'm going to refer that patient to a surgical oncologist.
0: So that's when you would pick up the phone and speak with Dr. Davidson and talk to him about this patient and start getting that part of the team involved. Absolutely. So... Let's assume that's me in this
2: particular case, Dr. Davidson. What happens to me at that point when I get to your office? So when you come to see me in general, most patients are going to need a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So melanomas are all treated with a wide local excision, and that's what Dr. Gross has been referring to, which he obviously does a lot of in his office, and a lot of dermatologists will take care of the thinner melanomas. When they get up to a certain thickness, which is a variable thickness, but somewhere in the .75 millimeter to one millimeter range, um, these patients need a lymph node biopsy checked to make sure it hasn't spread to a lymph node. And that's a procedure that we do routinely for all our patients with melanoma, most of our patients with melanoma. So when
0: you're going to do the lymph node check, is that an in-office procedure as well, or do I have to go to the hospital for
2: like an outpatient procedure for that? Good question. A lot of people show up expecting to have surgery on the spot, but that's not the way it works. <laughs> this is something that has to be scheduled in the operating room and okay. usually is done within a week or so after their visit to the to our office.
0: And is its it... Is it common that when you are are dealing with that type of lesion that's got a little greater thickness that you described? How frequently is that one that's going to be worrisome where we start to see some actual involvement in the lymph nodes and really have to get aggressive?
2: So in general, we recommend doing sentinel lymph node biopsies when the risk that it has spread to a lymph node reaches the threshold of around 5%. And, and where that threshold is, is is a little bit controversial. But certainly by one millimeter thick, those patients are certainly at 5% risk or greater of having an involved lymph node. Mm. And that risk can go up as the thickness will increase for that particular patient for whatever their melanoma is. So as you can see, the thickness of the melanoma is very important. In dictating how we treat these so I guess the thicker it becomes
0: then it's starting to penetrate into the deeper levels of the skin tissue and I guess that allows it to become you know parts of it to cells of that to break off and start moving other places
2: right there, there's kind of a, a continuum that increases as the thickness of that melanoma increases and that risk for lymph nodes metastasis or spread Will slowly rise up into the 15, 20, 25, 30% range, depending on what that thickness is.
0: I see. And so when you're going into the lymph node, is that a needle biopsy most of the time, or are you actually going to excise a node or two to try to get a full analysis of what they look like?
2: So, what we do, CW, is we do a, what's called a lymphocentigraphy, which is an, a radiology procedure, where, for instance, if you have a melanoma on the back of your hand, we know intuitively that that melanoma is, if it's going to spread, is going to spread to a lymph node under your arm. Right. So the way we are able to identify that the particular lymph node of concern is by injecting a radioactive protein around the melanoma site. In this case, on the back of the hand, as that radioactive protein travels through the lymphatic channels, it will go to one particular lymph node, the so-called sentinel or the first lymph node draining that particular area and that's how it identif- we identify the lymph node that needs to be biopsied and then the the lymph node is biopsied through an open procedure so there's an incision an operative incision and the removal of that lymph node and it's tested by our pathologist
0: we've been speaking with dr. Scott Davidson surgical oncologist who treats patients when they develop skin cancer and learning a little bit about how we find out what exactly we're dealing with um, you know, take me through once we get to that point. Um, obviously, if, if, if that comes back and that sentinel lymph node looks great, then are
2: we just in a watchful waiting pattern? Uh, or You know, what do we do at that point? So, of all the sentinel lymph node biopsies that we do, approximately 80% will be negative. And obviously, negative is a good thing in right. this situation. And what we tell patients is that they've got a melanoma, there is a variable incidence of recurrence depending on that thickness, and there's no other treatment indication at that time, but they do need to be followed very cl- closely, Okay, and that is lifetime follow-up. So what we recommend is that they follow up very closely with their dermatologist. I tell them to find a the dermatologist they like and stay with them the rest of their life, and they also will follow up in our office for usually several years as we're screening them. I'm sorry to use that word, Dr. Gross, but as we're following them as well <laughs> monitoring them <laughs> monitoring uh, yes <laughs> thank you <laughs>
0: so if you know if that's my case and I've developed a, you know a melanoma but it my lymph node was clear um, does my risk of recurrence that you describe, is it typically kind of in the same zone? Or does that mean that I'm that much more at a greater risk to have it appear at another part of my body?
2: So it's, it's really directly related to the thickness of the melanoma. Okay. So if you have a one millimeter thick melanoma, the risk of it coming back is going to be one number. But if you have, for instance, a four and a half millimeter thick melanoma, that risk is much higher. But it will be in the same zone of the
0: body, or it, it, am I looking like it might come back in another extremity or another place on the body?
2: So, of the things, that, the factors we look at that determine the prognosis of the melanoma, yeah. overwhelmingly, the the most important is thickness. There are other, there are a few other pathologic factors that we looked at look at that also have some impact. Um, that that I, I don't necessarily need to go into, but there's some things that we look at on our path report that can help us judge that as well. The location of the melanoma plays a minor role okay. in determining the prognosis. Certain sites tend to behave worse, such as anywhere on the scalp or head and neck. Also, interestingly, melanomas on the hands and feet tend to be more aggressive. Mm. Other than that, they all behave fairly similarly regardless of the location.
0: How, how much time are we talking from the time that the the melanoma or the skin cancer uh, whatever type it may be starts to develop before we start seeing those types of depths that you talk about since you know depth and penetration into the tissue is obviously key how long does it take for it to get to that you know one to four millimeter range where we really start to worry
2: well my my simple answer and what I tell patients is it's probably a lot longer than we think it is but we really don't know I don't Mm -hmm. think there's any way to know that because obviously we would have to sample a melanoma leave it in that patient <laughs> and a, wait and see a study that you're probably not going to get a lot of volunteers to participate there's in. some countries they can do that in but i don't think we get away with it here <laughs> i
0: understand so okay so going back to our case that got me to you i've got a thicker lesion um, we're going to go into the operating room and and look at my sentinel lymph nodes and now in this particular case take me through what happens for me if i do find cells in that lymph node now, what, what happens?
2: So with if we do the procedure, the sentinel the lymph node biopsy, and we get the results back and the lymph node is positive, we've automatically jumped from a stage 1 or 2 melanoma to a stage 3 melanoma. And that's out of 4, 4 being metastatic disease, okay, and 3 meaning basically it's spread to lymph nodes. So in that case, um, the patient is probably going to be a candidate for further surgery so, for instance, back to my first example, if the melanoma is under the arm and the lymph nodes positive, we're going to want to bring that patient back to surgery and remove all the lymph nodes under their arm. After that, they are then eligible for some other treatments that um, have shown some benefit recently in the treatment of melanomas.
0: And that would probably involve either some radiation perhaps with uh, Dr. Rosenbaum or Dr. Elizade. Um, with regards to some systemic types of treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or hormonal treatments that you might get involved with the patient?
4: Yeah, that's correct. Um, speaking, uh, Dr. Lizadeh, here, as the medical oncologist, we typically would see a patient who is considered high risk, one like the one that we're talking about. And usually that would be a person who has an involved lymph node. Or a person who might have a, a very high risk uh, d- particularly deep melanoma or one that has ulceration those are the kind of cases that are flagged for being high risk for recurrence <coughs> nevertheless when we start we just because someone might have these features doesn't mean definitely that their melanoma will recur it might not in fact once a surgeon such as Dr. Davidson has done appropriate, adequate surgery, we assume that the patient is hopefully cured and that all of the melanoma has been rid uh, and uh, will not come back. Nevertheless, we know that statistically speaking, there is a reasonable chance, particularly the higher the risk uh, becomes, the higher the risk that uh, the melanoma will recur. In those cases, we will then have a discussion about giving various forms of adjunctive adjuvant therapies that would hopefully kill off any tiny micro level of cells that could be remaining. And those adjuvant therapies are usually what we call systemic therapies, therapies that can enter into the bloodstream, whether through your digestive tract, swallowing a pill, or intravenously and then also radiation therapy which we'll also be talking about
0: right and so I mean obviously the it sounds as though the excision or cutting it off uh, the, the the cancer lesion that we're dealing with is you know we do that straight away um, so the, the treatments that you're going to be getting from medical oncology I guess are almost always or if not always going to follow surgery rather I know then like say for example we talked about breast cancer a while back and sometimes we'll treat with some of those therapies before we do surgery or even radiation to try to shrink the tumor down. But it sounds like we're going to remove it entirely as much as we can, and then hopefully follow that and prevent metastasis to other parts of the body if we've gotten into the lymph nodes. Is that on track?
4: Currently, we, we typically give therapy afterwards, but uh, one thing one learns in oncology is never to say never. And so, you know, there could be a case or a time perhaps in the future when we might in melanoma want to give therapies uh, at, um, prior to surgery, but right now we don't.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Elise of uh, the Georgia Cancer Specialist, a medical oncologist that uh, helps treat uh, the patients once they develop skin cancer. And- you know, I understand there's some, you know, been some clinical trials of late, and there's different things that uh, the treatments have kind of evolved a little bit of late that kind of help you be very specific and actually uh, have somewhat improved, I guess, the patient experience when they're dealing with uh, adjunctive therapies and chemo, can you talk a little bit about what is it it like for me when I'm going through a regimen of of the uh, medical oncology treatments that I might face nowadays? Because it's not as severe as it used to be from what I understand when I'm getting either chemotherapy agents or some of the adjunctive treatments that you talked about.
4: We typically think about chemotherapy both in the adjunctive setting and in the metastatic setting for most kinds of cancers, but it just so happens that for melanoma, chemotherapy doesn't work all that well. And only in in certain cases is it given in the the metastatic, the stage four setting. Um, So that's a good thing. But the bad thing, uh, the bad aspect about that is that uh, outside of chemotherapy, we haven't had uh, much other therapy to offer until recent. And the reason that we do now have an increasing number of therapies to offer is because for years there has been intensive scientific laboratory clinical study uh, um, uh, research that has been going on and on and on. And through the dedication of a number of researchers throughout the world, but certainly a large number here in our country, um, new therapies have just recently been developed and this is a, an extremely exciting time in medical oncology uh, to treat melanoma. Um, The new classes of therapies can be uh, broken down into two different types. Uh, One is something called targeted therapy, uh, kind of a smart bomb, so to speak, where if we can understand the molecular underpinnings of the cancer cell and which specific genes are active in that cancer cell, which then lead to certain proteins being overproduced, those proteins then cause the cell to to overreplicate and to become essentially kind of immortal. Um, Once that's understood, then drugs can be used that target, that are first created, and then target those specific um, proteins in the cell. That's targeted therapy. And then the other form of therapy is something called immune therapy. That's been evolving for a while with melanoma, but just recently several new drugs have come out that are kind of the creme de la creme of immune therapy and offer seem to offer uh, quite significant um, chances for improvement in, in patients with melanoma.
0: So now, now that these new treatments are emerging and, and coming through clinical trials, are they actually now in the community for folks to have access to, you know, when I get to your office, or do I need to be involved as a patient in one of the clinical trials? I know, like, Northside Cancer Institute, for example, is one that participates in a number of trials. Um, So do I have to be in a study to get access to these types of medications, or can I get them straight away from my cancer physician? That's
4: a great question. And so there are two ways one can receive these therapies. One is through standard drugs that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, and then there are other, other drugs that are under investigation that one can receive through a clinical trial. And in melanoma, we do, through the Northside Cancer Institute, uh, offer clinical trials uh, for new evolving uh, therapies uh, in melanoma for our patients. Um, and that is a good way to have access to new therapies that might um, uh, offer someone an advantage over standard treatments.
0: That's great. Uh, You know, and, and to, to lay on top of that, we recently had uh, folks from Georgia core and Georgia cancer info and the navigators program on the show and, and for patients in the community that want to have an idea of what kind of studies are going on around the state um, Georgia centers for oncology research and education. um, That is a great resource for you to learn more about what studies are out there. You know, would one of those be applicable to you? Obviously, Linking up with the Navigator program within the Northside Cancer Institute would be one where you're dealing with the nurses and they can probably advise. But obviously, if I'm a Georgia cancer specialist, they're going to be able to tell me exactly what's going on as well. So, uh, excellent uh, information there. Um, at what point do you involve someone like uh, Dr. Rosenbaum in the plan when in, in the radiation oncology side?
4: Well, uh, we. We meet on a weekly basis, all of the, uh, the, me, the physicians who are involved with melanoma and also another kind of cancer called sarcoma, uh, and we meet together and discuss uh, the majority of these cases in a multidisciplinary fashion, and it's in that setting where we'll talk with Dr. Rosenbaum and get her input about whether or not a patient should be considered for radiation as well.
0: Well, if you'll you know jump in here, Dr. Rosamond, tell me you know at what point uh, you know am I going to be involved in you know radiation oncology as part of my skin cancer treatment?
3: So, radiation is really should be seen as a sort of a complement to surgery. It has the advantage of being a local regional treatment. In that, if the there is a risk that the um, melanoma, or the skin cancer, for that matter, has a high risk of recurring, that risk can be decreased by using radiation, and it can be decreased by using radiation to what we call the primary site, where this started, as well as to the draining lymph nodes. Sometimes when the skin cancer or the melanoma has characteristics which put it at high risk for a local recurrence, we will treat only the local recurrence or only the surgical bed to prevent a local recurrence. If it has a risk of spreading regionally, we will treat the region or the draining nodes, the nodes that drain that particular area. Um, and it's an interesting thing because radiation is at a disadvantage because it, in fact, does not impact it does not impact the patient's risk of developing disease outside the radiation field the advantage of that is that the toxicity of radiation is much less because in fact what we are doing is we're treating that area plus the lymph nodes and we don't get some of the systemic toxicities mm-hmm. that you get from chemotherapy or from something that's systemic. Um, so there are certain characteristics we look at. Um, there's also other situations in which radiation becomes important, such as patients who can't have surgery, patients who are going to have surgery in areas of the body where there's a lot of de- um, deformities that are going to be formed, where or where surgery has taken place and not all of the cancer has been removed. Uh, Basal cell, which is the most common skin cancer we have, generally doesn't tend to um, spread to lymph nodes. And that wouldn't be one that we would worry about the lymph nodes very much, but often it cannot be completely removed, or it recurs, or in a squamous cell cancer, which is another skin cancer, um, there is some risk to the lymph nodes and sometimes because of the anatomical distribution, it's difficult to remove all of the cancer. In that situation, radiation becomes very important in decreasing the risk.
0: Since we're dealing with uh, a lesion that's laying, you know, on the Top of the skin rather than a visceral one or one that's mm-hmm. on an organ inside the body, does that allow you then to use a little bit lower dose to treat the, the, mm. t- the tissue or, or not really? You just get it's to isolate it a little bit more.
3: Right, you isolate a little more and it's not the lower dose, it's I that see. we have certain radiations which have a depth of penetration that mm. we can choose. I see. So w- sometimes treating the skin, you get a lot of skin reaction, but you don't actually have to be treating any visceral organs.
0: And that's, that's true regardless of where the lesion may be laying. Not. Okay, um, and, and so we've got uh, our plastic surgeon here as part of the team as well. And so there's gonna be a point where I might get involved with, uh, with you from a reconstruction point of view. Tell me a little bit about when it makes sense for me to have a plastic surgeon uh, on my case to help with uh, reconstructive processes.
5: So usually um, a plastic surgeon is involved once the diagnosis has been made. And Dr. Davison has uh, assessed the patient and has come up with a surgical plan. So when by doing a surgical treatment, if he thinks that there will be a loss of certain anatomy or function inside of the treatment, or if there, if there will be a lot of loss of tissue, that's when he would usually refer the patient to me or any of my colleagues to start, try to see how we can restore that area of t- that is going to be surgically removed. And from a plastic surgeon t- standpoint, you know, our main goal is to restore anatomy, mm-hmm. trying to put back together or to try to replace the tissue that is lost with something similar. But in the process, you also want to uh, restore or uh, maintain functionality of that area and also ultimately achieve a good cosmetic outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I would assume that that's probably particularly important when we're dealing with um, you know, your face um, right. or, or, you know, areas on the head or neck uh, that are obviously readily visible or, you know, upper extremities in particular, or maybe the ladies on their legs. So, um, you know, you know what, what is that like when you're, when you're approaching that patient? I mean, I assume that there's kind of a process that you have to go through when you know we're dealing with that, where you have to bring in your, your plastics expertise in particular to really try to get them back as close as they can to their pre-surgery or pre-treatment uh, life.
5: Yeah, so there's definitely areas, certain areas, just like, like the face, where the cosmetic and uh, functionality concern is much higher than, for example, the trunk, the abdomen, or certain areas of the extremities. So patients come in with a certain level of anxiety mm-hmm. to begin with because they've already spoken with the rest of the team uh, about, okay. The this certain amount will be uh, removed, uh, will receive certain treatment, but will I be left with a defect or will I be left with a deformity that I cannot live with, especially when it's regarding the facial area. So you have to explain to them, um, first of all, I have to communicate with Dr. Uh, Davison about how much or where specifically the area of concern is going to be. So you can explain to them what the normal ad- anatomy and function of that area is, is about and how I would plan to restore it. So once you explain to them those aspects of the, of the surgery and so they understand that they will be restored and that th- there will be function and they will have a co- uh, an acceptable, at least, uh, cosmetic outcome, they are very at ease with that treatment plan.
0: At what point do I start getting involved with, you know, you as a member of the team, Dr. Chang, you know, to do reconstructive type procedures? I mean, in in terms of uh, particularly if I've had kind of the full gamut, I've had some radiation, I've had some adjunctive therapies, obviously I had surgery. When do you get involved in terms of the timeline?
5: I think it's somewhere in between the surgical uh, planning of the wide local excision and and the adjunctive uh, treatment, uh, so you know that's why it's important to communicate with the rest of the team members of what is what step is going to be done first. Uh, most of the time, we try to do uh, we try to coordinate with the surgical oncologist to try to coordinate and do an immediate reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So during the time of the removal or the excision of, of the melanoma or skin cancer, we can actually at least start with part of the reconstruction and and and, and um, restoration of the area. And then we, d- we communicate with the radiation oncologist or the oncologist to see if they need immediate treatment after the surgery, or if I can just go ahead and do my either revision or second stage and so forth. So it's, uh, the, the reconstruction, of course, it is important, but also I have to t- keep in mind and take into consideration that she d- that, that particular patient, he or she, will need other treatments as well.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Jenny Chang of Artisan Plastic Surgery. She's the reconstructive plastic surgeon who would be working with you among her colleagues as well. Um, were you to require some reconstructive surgery after skin cancer treatment? and, and You know, anyone can jump in here. What's the timeline like from the time that I get to you, Dr. Gross, to the time that I've, you know, particularly if I'm a patient that's going to be dealing with all five physicians at the table, how long does this process take for me um, when I get into that, you know, type of uh, disease where, uh, you know, I've got full gamut, I've got some lymph nodes, I'm getting some chemo or some adjunctive therapy, getting radiation. How long does it take me to get through treatment?
1: starting out with the biopsy I've got a great dermatopathologist we usually get the results from the biopsy back in a day or two and if I need to refer my patients to Dr. Uh, Davidson um, they're incredibly good about getting the patients in quickly it's usually a matter of a couple of days a week tops and then from there
2: from there um, we're seeing the patient usually as quickly as we can like Dr. Gross alluded to and typically we can get patients every any kind of testing they need done but in preparation for surgery. Um, there there's certain things that, that make it take longer. For instance, if we are doing, let's just take an example. Let's say we're doing a melanoma of the scalp and we're going to have a large defect when we're done doing the excision. We're going to need the help of Dr. Chang. So what we're going to do is we're going to need to establish a, a relationship with Dr. Chang, with that patient, so an appointment and then we have to coordinate surgery. So sometimes that means it'll take a little longer to get that patient to surgery, sometimes two to three weeks. If we don't need the assistance of a plastic surgeon, oftentimes we can uh, do what we need to do to get that patient ready for surgery within a week or two.
0: Okay, moving a lot more quickly than I would have have imagined as far as Dr. Elizade and uh, Dr. Rosenbaum, how long does my treatment with the (coughs) two of you end up taking whenever I'm involved with your care?
3: Well, radiation can take anywhere from um, five high-dose treatments for melanoma, which we often do, um, to six weeks of treatment. So okay. it's very much dependent on what we're trying to treat um, and managing the toxicity of the radiation.
0: And those treatments are typically, from what I understand, just a, you know, 15, 15, 20 minutes? 15, 20 minutes right. a day, okay. yes. And, and
3: people usually can continue working.
0: I got gotcha. you. How, how about from a medical oncology perspective, what's my course of treatment typically take from a timeline kind of?
4: Well, the evaluation period, again, uh, once you first meet the medical oncologist, can take uh, typically several weeks to up to even a month. And so initially, one would meet and discuss the options, uh, clinical trials that might be available. And then, for instance, we happen to have a clinical trial right now through the Northside Cancer Institute that involves two of those targeted drugs that we discussed before um, that can be given to people in the adjunctive setting, but it only is offered in patients who have a certain type of melanoma, one that has the BRAF mutation. And so typically, if we're going to consider that trial, we'll send out for testing on the tissue, the tumor site for that. That can take some time. So the point I'm trying to make is that it, it it can take a month or more. We might order a CAT scan, for instance to assess the status of the disease in the body <coughs> then once we've made our decision done our testing and are ready to start this systemic therapy in the adjunctive setting usually the course of therapy if it's interferon is about a year there is a different form of interferon that was recently FDA approved that believe it or not the duration of therapy um, on the trial at least uh, it was for 5 years mm. um, but the norm would be usually about a year of therapy.
0: I understand. Now, once I've gone through my treatment, you had another thought, Dr. Rosemary?
3: I just had um, a comment, which is one of the great advantages that we have is that we are multidisciplinary. So what we do is we sit together in the same room and we map out a plan so that for the individual patient, what they are left with is the whole forest and not just the trees Mm -hmm. and knowing what is going to happen, and what the timeline will be. And that, I think, is a great advantage.
0: Having a better understanding, and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I really appreciate having these forums, that we can sit down and talk so that if somebody's just beginning to begin that journey, um, it's a little bit less overwhelming. I, I know you know the, the specialty our particular practice focuses in often involves number a uh, number of specialists, and patients are surprised and sometimes frustrated by the fact that I've got all these doctors I have to go see, but as you can see here through our discussion today, that it's each one of you plays a very key role in the treatment of this particular patient. Um, so knowing that you know they've got this team of as many as five physicians, they're gonna sit down and actually treatment plan for me um, is useful for that patient, to either who's going through it themselves or maybe they have a loved one that's getting ready to go through it. Um, before we have to jump out today, um, you know, if, if I could go around the room and just if there's a thought that you would like to leave the audience with, whether they're a patient out there listening or maybe a physician that may be out there in the community that's uh, seeing patients that they could potentially identify something and get them to you quickly, you know, if you could just share a thought that you really wish that uh, the people out there would know, either to keep them from having to come see you or perhaps uh, at least make their course of care a little bit more simple as they go through it.
2: Uh, C.W., what, in, in uh, continuing on the discussion about the timing mm. and how long it takes One thing I like to stress to my patients is that I think the important thing about treating melanoma, any skin cancers, and and in fact any cancer, is not doing it quickly but doing it appropriately. And so many patients show up with such an urgency to to get it done as quickly as possible, um, probably misunderstanding that their cancer may be growing by leaps and bounds when really it probably isn't. It probably grows very slowly, a lot more slowly than we think. But it's much more important that we can look back on what we've done and make sure we've done the appropriate things as opposed to have done it quickly. Mm-hmm. Being diligent
0: in the plan. And that sounds like, you know, as I've heard each of you discuss what you're doing and how you involve your colleagues here, it's clear that if I end up in the care of this particular team, that's what I'm going to have is is they're, they're a measure of urgency, but we're going to be diligent in terms of which choices that we do. I mean, are, are there, a, I know with like, for example, when Dr. Chang was talking with us in the past about breast cancer, I had some choices along the way as far as my treatment but I haven't really heard that so much today. That I, you know, it sounds like it's really more ABC in this particular instance. That the the course of care is really more set in terms of what we have to do rather than. Um, Maybe having one or two or possibly three choices of different either reconstructive procedures or even, you know, the type of radiation or, you know, surgery that I would get. So it sounds like it's really more kind of set in stone. If you have melanoma or a particular skin cancer, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go A, B, C, D, and who would we involved really depends heavily on that. Is that, that correct? I don't really have a lot of different choices as to whether or not I get radiation or the type of radiation or it's really the the cancer itself that's dictating that more than the patient's choices of what kinds of things do I want to potentially face after my treatment is over, say, for example, in the prostate cancer population where they might have some choices.
2: Yeah, I think that's accurate. Uh, The treatment for melanoma is oftentimes uh, pretty well set with what we need to do depending on the information we're gathering as we treat it, uh, as opposed to others like breast cancer, where there usually are a lot of different options.
0: Sounds like the key here is to not be cavalier about getting out in the sun, that uh, it may may look great to your eyes, but uh, in the end, it's it's really very, very, very risky to uh, get out and let yourself get a tan, uh, much, much less get a sunburn. So, you know, I would just wanna say, I know our practice, Each of you comes from a very busy practice. You have a very busy office, and I want to make sure I can get you back to those in time. Any parting thoughts that you have, um, you know, as a specialist coming from your particular backgrounds that you would want a patient to know?
1: I would have to tell your listeners that 95 to 98% of basal cell cancers and squamous cell cancers are completely preventable by the avoidance of ultraviolet radiation from the sun and from tanning beds. And it's estimated with regard to melanoma that 90% have some UV relation. So possibly we could be preventing up to 90% of melanomas as well. And it's just not worth it. So my recommendation is stay out of the sun, stay out of tanning beds, keep your sunscreen on, keep your skin covered up, and get your skin checked once a year by your physician.
0: And so then if you're like me... I'm 47 and i've been out in the sun plenty and i've been out in the sun plenty with limited or no protection so now my thing is to get effectively screened for lack of a better get examined i guess i should say get a truly examination uh, by a physician rather than just someone kind of giving me a quick once over in the in the line at a community screening how about you dr davidson anything that you'd like to leave with the audience today
2: Uh, i think it's important to recognize that the this is the physician treatment team, but there's also other people involved in the, for instance, navigation of these patients that I think is important to mention. Um, you know, it can be when patients come to see uh, us physicians with a diagnosis of cancer and specifically melanoma, there's obviously a lot of fear involved, and people are not always uh, equipped to handle the stressors that they normally would because of those fears and the things going on with them emotionally. And so we have, we have teams of people that help uh, the patients navigate through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, paramedical personnel that deal with a lot of different things. And I think it's important to mention those things. Uh, as a vital and important part of the team,
0: I know that Northside Cancer Institute really puts a lot of focus in terms of providing, you know, survivorship type support that you have. Access to groups uh, that are facing your particular disease state—in this case, skin cancer—you um, mentioned the navigators, which are nurses that uh, interface with you along the way and make sure that you're getting access to the variety of resources, and you know whether that's uh, mental and emotional support uh, or you know physical, you know, type uh, logistical type assistance as well. Uh, anything from you, Dr. Elizade?
4: When people are given a diagnosis of melanoma, that's obviously a huge scare. And so one thing I would want the audience to know is that all hope is not lost. There are more and more therapies coming out. We are getting smarter about our ability to treat melanoma. Um, and uh, you, will, you can and will do well. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, the importance of clinical trials. Uh, t- typically, the view about a clinical trial is that uh, maybe this is something that's going to be experimenting on me. Uh, taking advantage of me. Uh, But uh, this could not be farther from the truth. Uh, Clinical trials these days are highly regulated to protect the participants that are involved in the trials. But more importantly, they bring advantages to the patients because as we talked about earlier, they offer new therapies that one wouldn't otherwise have access to and could make a big difference in your outcome. Third, melanoma is a little bit of a niche cancer. It takes people that are specialists in melanoma. So if you're given a diagnosis of melanoma, it's worth asking, do you participate in a melanoma-dedicated team? Do you have conferences that discuss melanoma regularly? Do you see a lot of melanoma? It's not that that a, a, a general oncologist could not treat it, but it would be worth at least looking into that and perhaps seeking out a dedicated melanoma center
0: that's one of the reasons why I was so pleased to be able to put together a panel like this just for the reason you described is that just because you can doesn't mean you really should be the one that to to treat somebody. Um, I know for myself, I want the people that are treating it all the time and particularly having access to the newest academic uh, research that's out there that's facing this particular disease state. So, you know, thanks again for making yourselves available to us. Um, You know, do you have thoughts as we go? Dr. Rosenbaum, go ahead.
3: Um, I think one of the the lovely things about uh, a multidisciplinary um, or the cancer Institute at Northside, where there's multidisciplinary uh, panels for almost all of the diseases, is that cancer is a journey and it's a timely journey, and it's something that is both emotional, financial, logistically difficult. And having a cancer institute, where you can get your treatment and up-to-date clinical trials and up-to-date treatment with people who do this on a regular basis, close to home, I think is invaluable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important and I think that's what we try and provide. I think
0: that's true and I think it's evident as we get to talking with each one of you. How about you, Dr. Chang?
5: You know, I think I agree with Dr. Rosenbaum. Um, it, you know, having being treated in, by an institute or a group of team uh, that is uh, that knows what the steps would be. It's not only important for the treatment part because everybody focuses on treating the cancer, but they also forget that there has to be like there has to be a road too from the time of the treatment to going back to the normal lifestyle and the normal activities. There has to be some sort of surveillance or like a long-term relationship that will help you with surveillance. So it's it's an overall everybody. It has to be like an, an, an overall and a multidisciplinary action that it has to come from the physicians, the auxiliary staff, everybody involved to make that patient go back to their normal life, which is ultimately what we want to, to do.
0: Well, one of the things that I really like about these types of shows where we get to sit down with the providers such as yourselves is the other piece that we're giving to the prospective patients out there or someone whose loved one would be your patient is that they actually get to interview you in a way they get to actually kind of get a sense of you as a as a person um and each time I've visited with physicians here on the show I've been very pleased to see that uh, to a person each one of their their individual personalities comes through, their passion for what they're doing has shown through and what they're t- describing. And you can tell that each one of them really gives a, uh, you know, th- they have some investment uh, in the outcome and the and the emotional response that their patient has to what they're going through. So, um, again, that's one of the other reasons why I'm so pleased to be able to introduce the community to folks like yourself is because now they actually get to come away with, what does it feel like when I speak with Dr. Eliza today? What does it feel like when I speak with Dr. Rosenbaum, Dr. Gross? Um, so so thank you all again. As I mentioned, uh, you know, it's obvious with the specialists like yourselves, you have very busy practices that uh, that you put on hold briefly today to come and share with us. And I know that that's no small thing. So uh, we want to say directly to each of you, thank you very much for investing your time today. I'm sure it was uh, well spent. And uh, I'm very glad to have shared this information with our community. Obviously link up with the uh, Northside Hospital, they're northside.com and you can link up to all of their uh, social media that's relevant to the hospital, each of the practices as well uh, will be linked up with, if you hook up with Top Docs um, at uh, Facebook slash Top Docs on BRX and then of course Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. We're going to be tied into all the social media for each of the uh, individual practices that compose the Northside Cancer Institute today. So that way, uh, each of your practices that are contributing information out there that would help the community will be able to kind of help extend the reach by uh, being involved with you as well. So um, for for our listeners, I want to say thanks for taking the time today. And uh, we'll see you all next week, same time, same place. Look forward to seeing you then.